0: Thanks for listening to the Henry Center podcast. We seek to bridge the gap between the academy and the church by cultivating resources and communities that advance Christian wisdom. If you'd like to learn more about the Henry Center, please visit our website at henrycenter.org. There you can find hundreds of articles, videos, and publications which promote theological understanding. The best way to stay connected with us is to subscribe to our newsletter though you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're able, we'd love to see you at one of our upcoming events, hosted at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Our public lectures feature scholars and pastors offering careful reflection on a range of biblical, theological, and ecclesial topics. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. Thank you. I'm sorry it isn't after breakfast rather than dinner, but at your table you'll find that I have a menu as well. Mine is two pages long, but uh, just think of it as more grilled stuffed pork chop. As I remember, I had just woken up from a nap when I decided to create the universe. That's the opening line of a novel entitled Mr. G by Alan Lightman. Well, what was God doing before creation? We know Augustine's answer to this cheeky inquiry. He was preparing hell for people who ask such questions. (laughs) Let me pose another. What were evangelicals doing before the creation project? My equally cheeky response, they were offering people a get out of hell free card, that is evangelistic tracts. The evangelically correct answer to Augustine's question, because it's Billy Graham's answer, is he was preparing heaven for people for whom that question never occurred. (laughs) Well, that's not quite right. That's not what he said. What he actually said was he was planning for our salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Creation too often is only an evangelical afterthought, if it's a thought at all. Lauren Wilkinson says, one of the reasons why the doctrine of creation has languished in evangelical thought may well be the belief that creation itself has fallen and only humanity will be redeemed. Well, our immediate interest is the interpretation of Genesis, but our ultimate interest is the doctrine of creation, what the church should say today about origins and everything else on the basis of the prophets and apostles. It's not so much the question, what was God doing before, but what was God doing, creating? Let's recall the first two objectives of our creation project. First, catalyze a field of study and general awareness of the doctrine of creation. Two, help evangelical Christians gain a deeper understanding of the doctrine of creation. This focus on doctrine raises a couple of questions. First. What is the nature and purpose of Christian doctrine in general? And what role, if any, should science play in the development of doctrine and our interpretation of Scripture? And then second, what are the main contours of the doctrine of creation in particular? Of course, the controversial issue, the electron in the room, is whether science is both the source and norm for the doctrine of creation and our reading of Scripture. Science and Scripture each have authority over their proper domains, but the tricky bit is discerning what those domains are. Who gets to draw up the plat of survey for their respective territories? Science at present has the advantage because it appears to be in the public domain, which is also its justification for occasionally exercising what we might call imminent explanatory domain over theology. Matter matters. Materiality is the scientist's turf. What do theologians know about the real world? We don't even have real jobs. (laughs) At least that's what my neighbor in Scotland thought. He was incensed that a fraction of his taxes went to pay my salary because he didn't think theology should be taught in a public university. Richard Dawkins concurs and puts it more eloquently when he asks, What has theology ever said that is of the smallest use to anybody? If all the achievements of theologians were wiped out tomorrow, would anyone notice the smallest difference? Even the bad achievements of scientists, the bombs, the sonar-guided whaling vessels, at least they work. The achievements of theologians don't do anything, don't affect anything, and don't mean anything, to which I have three responses ouch, I get it, and au contraire. (laughs) I want to say first that theology underwrites the intelligibility and hence legibility of matter. The book of nature has an author. The physical universe is the handiwork of a creator, the the handwriting of God writ large. Second, uh, reality is stratified, and can be studied by different sciences at different levels. For example, physicists study the elementary particles of our world, chemists study the molecular level, biologists the cellular level, zoologists the animal level, psychologists the behavior of that human organism, and sociologists study the behavior of group structures of human organisms. And it follows that. The more complex levels depend upon the simpler levels, but cannot be explained by laws that govern those lower levels alone. That is, you can't explain the behavior of a cell with the concepts and laws of physics only. And then secondly, I think it follows that no one level is more real than another. We need several sciences working at different levels to get a complete picture, a thick description, of a natural phenomenon. Now, whether or not theology represents another level, we could call it the queen level, that remains to be seen. Well, matter matters. Matter is multi-level, but matter is also mysterious. I've been learning just how mysterious matter is thanks to the Italian theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli and his book Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. It was the title that got me. Uh, This book awakened me from my dogmatic theological slumbers to the wide awake paradoxes of contemporary science. Rovelli helped me understand how space is not an empty container filled with bodily things, bits of matter, but rather a material entity, a field of force that bends and undulates in its own right. By the way, that was Einstein's theory of relativity without the math. And at the other end of the material spectrum, the very, very small, lies quantum mechanics. And Rovelli says that these two theories, general relativity and quantum mechanics, cannot both be right because they contradict each other. But the paradox is both theories work. So Rovelli writes this. He says, nature is behaving with us like that elderly rabbi to whom two men went in to settle a dispute. Having listened to the first, the rabbi says, you are in the right. The second insists on being heard. The rabbi listens to him and says, you are also right. Now having overheard from the next room, the rabbi's wife calls out, they can't both be right. The rabbi reflects and nods and then concludes, And you're right too. (laughs) When we move from the inorganic to the organic, the mystery only deepens. There's a long, fascinating passage, I can't read the whole thing, in Thomas Mann's book, The Magic Mountain, where the hero Hans Kostorp ponders the riddle of existence. He asks, What was life? No one knew. No one could pinpoint when it had emerged from nature and struck fire. Between life and inanimate nature was a yawning abyss, which research sought in vain to bridge. People endeavored to close that abyss with theories. It swallowed them whole and was still not an inch less broad or deep. What was life, really? It was a secret, sensate stirring in the chaste chill of space. I want to quote Mann again to move me on to my next heading. The speaker now is explaining how his grandfather celebrated the Revolution of 1830, also known as the Trois Glorieuses. Mann writes about the grandfather. He had publicly proclaimed that all men would one day place those three days in Paris alongside the six days of creation. At that, a flabbergasted Hans Kostorp could not help but bang his hand on the table. For someone to place three days in the summer of 1830, during which the Parisians had written a new constitution alongside the six in which the Lord God had divided the waters of the firmament and created great lights in the heavens and the flowers, trees, fish, birds, and life itself, that really seemed a bit much. Here endeth the reading of the book of nature. I turn now to consider the second book of grace under the rubric, Scripture Matters More. And I'm thinking of the words we've already heard today of Jesus. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, Scripture matters more because it shines light on what would otherwise remain dark matter, at least at some levels. Calvin expresses this with his image of Scripture as spectacles, corrective lenses that enable God's handwriting to come into focus so that we can read it. We come to see that the Creator is also the redeemer in this book, and that creation is the object of grace. In the beginning of Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, that is, we read, Holy Writ, by the manner of its speech, transcends every science, because in one and the same sentence, while it describes a fact, it reveals a mystery. Now, Aquinas insisted that all Christian doctrine be based on the literal sense. And I think much in the creation project will depend on what we understand by the literal sense. Some people confuse the literal sense with its literalistic counterpart. And that reminds me of scientists who limit the real to what is only materialistic. So that makes me wonder, like matter, could the literal sense of scripture be multi-leveled, too? Could there be a parallel between the hierarchically structured physical reality that scientists study and the hierarchically structured semantic reality of the Bible? Yes, of course we want to do justice to Scripture on its own terms, but at what level? We heard that being discussed this afternoon. Our decision about the level will impact how we understand the literal sense, and that will affect other decisions too about which contexts are most relevant to determining meaning. Is it the A and E? Is it the canon? The benefit of a multi-level literal sense is its built-in safeguard against reductionism. Because what we're ultimately trying to describe as exegetes and interpreters is the way the words go and where they're headed their proximate, and their ultimate reference. So consider, the elementary particles, so to speak, of biblical discourse are not gluons or quarks, but phonemes and lexemes. And syntax resembles chemistry in its attempt to explain the rules that govern the bonding of these particles. Grammar, I guess that's like the gravitational force. But even syntax can't explain everything that's going on in a text, or even the literal sense. The words and sentences of the Bible are themselves ingredient in more complex structures, speech acts, stories, and other literary genres. We need to distinguish sentence meaning from speaker meaning, syntax from semantics. And if the literal sense pertains to what authors are saying and using just these words in just this way and just this literary form, we have to ask, whose use are we describing? Does inspiration mean that we should simply superimpose human and divine authorial intention? Is it possible that God is saying something over and above what the human authors are saying, in which case, we would have to give a theological thicker description of the literal sense. Now, I'm raising these questions not to open up a hermeneutical hornet's nest, much less to suggest that God's word is not clear, but to encourage us to see that interpretations of both books, nature and scripture, require thick description. Scripture matters more because in it we learn that matter is not all there is. Scripture gives voice to an aspect or level of reality not perceived by the natural sciences. Moreover, Scripture matters more because it's conducive to understanding and not just explanation. Understanding involving how, grasping how things fit together, what it all means. Someone said, Nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts— the knowledge of God and of ourselves." It's Calvin. Uh, And scripture connects these diverse dots in a unified, canonical, storied whole. So now, finally, to the doctrine of creation itself. But first, a brief word about the purpose of doctrine in general. Which level of reality does Christian doctrine describe? According to John Webster, theology is a comprehensive science, a science of everything. But it's not a science of everything about everything, but rather a science of God and all other things under the aspect of createdness. In other words, theology describes what can be known of God and of all other things in relation to God. That's the level and the aspect that doctrine focuses on. And in doing that, it cultivates a deeper understanding of the world and universal history by focusing on a particular history recounted in Scripture. And this is the same history, the ongoing drama, of which the church and cosmos are both still a part. And doctrine more particularly is instruction for disciples as they seek to discern what to say and do that is in line with what God has done, is doing, and will do. So I make this point to remind us that doctrines aren't simply bits of information, but means of intellectual and character and spiritual formation. Doctrines help disciples to become people who can think biblically and make theological judgments that allow them to participate rightly in what's going on in this world and speak and do things that glorify God. Now if Calvin's right that the sum of our wisdom consists in this paired knowledge of God and self, then wisdom begins with knowing God as creator and ourselves as creatures. So what does the doctrine of creation actually teach? Hint, it's not first and foremost about the six days, because it, and it also draws on more than Genesis one through three, in this regard, I was encouraged by what Pastor Ken was telling me at the table at dinner, that he preached on Genesis for 49 weeks. And the, wasn't that right? Oh, sorry, months. That sounds important. That's a lot. And... Um, <laughs> It's making my point even stronger. And he, he also made a point of saying that the first few weeks were intentionally trying to help the congregation see that it wasn't all about creation and evolution. There's a lot going on in Genesis, and I would add, in the doctrine of creation. Gerhardus Voss's definition, though, is a good place to begin. What is creation, he asks? That external work of God by which he has produced heaven and earth, that is, the universe, out of nothing, and has imparted to all things their nature. So let me expand on each of these three points. First, odd extra, a work outside himself. Creation is about God before it's about the origin of the world. It's about theology before it's about cosmology. It's about God. But we understand the external works of God only when we see how they proceed from the perfect life of God and himself. God's ad intra work, that is, the eternal life of the Trinity, his communicative activity of Father, Son, and Spirit, that's constitutive of who God is. As to the external works of the Trinity, they're indivisible, the result of the joint agency of Father, Son, and Spirit. I hope we can agree on that. Yes, it's a patristic maxim, but don't hold that against it. It's also a deeply biblical insight into the nature of God. Creation is a triune work. The Father calls things into being and gives them substance. The Son individuates and forms them. The Spirit animates and enlivens them. And God is under no external compulsion to create because he already possesses unlimited blessedness in his own life, this loving communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. God creates them not to make himself entire, but because he already is entire and so entirely free to create without loss. Ex nihilo. Creation ex nihilo has been, since the second century, the touchstone of a genuinely Christian understanding of creation. Now, like almost every other doctrine, its development was precipitated by ways of reading scripture that jeopardized the integrity either of God or the gospel or both. Now in my view, ex nihilo creation is every bit as crucial for interpreting scripture and understanding God rightly as is homoousios, the doctrine that the son is of the same substance as the father. Now, neither term, homoousios or ex nihilo, is in the Bible. But without these notions, biblical interpretation and theology alike eventually go off the orthodox rails. That's my contention. There's no questions after this lecture, so I'm safe. (laughs) Until tomorrow. Doctrinal doctrinal theology gives formal clarity and systematic coherence to the things the biblical authors talk about figuratively and occasionally. Theology does not read into verses ideas that are not there, at least not theology at its best. Rather, theology explores and elaborates what is said. What does scripture say? about creation. Isaiah 44-24 uh, uh, has the Lord saying, I am the Lord who made all things. In the New Testament, Ephesians 3:9, the plan speaks of the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then Revelation 4:11, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God's the creator. But uh, Romans 4.17 is even more to the ex nihilo point. God gives life to the dead, says Paul, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God's ability to create ex nihilo is an incommunicable attribute. It distinguishes God from all other entities visible and invisible, Ex nihilo means that there is no entity on which God has to work. God doesn't struggle to create. John Webster puts it this way. Ex does not refer to a process involving an agent and a material cause, but to a logical but not temporal sequence in which what once was not now is. It's not even an event in time. It's a divinely willed act by which time and space come to be. Wisdom begins by acknowledging this most basic distinction of all between uncreated and created being, and has imparted to all things their nature. This third part of Voss's definition pertains to what we might call creation ordinata, ordered. There is a created order that we must know if we're to be wise, and we must conform to it if we're to flourish. Now there's many kinds of created beings with various levels of complexity requiring multiple levels of description. Graham Cole speaks helpfully of a creation manifold. Angels are personal, conscious and living, but immaterial. Human beings are personal, conscious and living, but material. Animals are conscious, living and material, but not personal. Plants are alive, but lack consciousness, but you can talk to them. And then there are all the inorganic things that comprise the world that aren't living. And God deals with each of these things according to their design plans or natures. We have to respect the order God has woven into the fabric of the universe if we are to go with the grain of the created order rather than against it. Acknowledging God as the one whose word orders creation puts into stark relief The offense against God we call idolatry. Sinners, idolaters, prefer self-creation and their self-graven images. They prefer that to bearing the image of another and inhabiting his created order. God created man, male, and female, yet many feel free to rewrite humanity by their own verbal fiat. Those who declare themselves to be something other than their given sex ultimately deny their creatureliness. It's not what Paul meant when he said, put on the new self. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeff wanted me to speak about what it means to be biblical in an age of science. Okay then. It means exercising good theological judgment on the basis of the prophets and apostles. By judgment, I don't mean condemnation. I'm thinking about basic mental acts like distinguishing things, identifying things, relating things. These are the basic operations of created intelligence. That's what I mean by judgments. And I believe the biblical doctrine of creation is a crucial aid in making good theological judgments. I've already mentioned the distinction between male and female, but even more basic is the creator-creature distinction itself. Sometimes it's just referred to as the Christian distinction. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the consequences of Israel's failure to abide by this distinction. There's no worse theological mistake than to mistake what is creaturely for the creator, or to treat or talk about the one true God as less than the creator, This is why it's easier for me to write on theological method than theology proper. And I believe that ex nihilo creation is a fence around the high places. It's a guard against idolatry and therefore a vital ingredient in good theological judgment. We do well everywhere and at all times to remember that God is the unmade maker of heaven and earth. Now creation ex nihilo is controversial at present. Some are flirting with the idea that creation is the original kenosis of God, the act in which God empties himself and creates space within himself for the world. It's not quite emanation, but we could call it creation ex deo, and it's particularly popular among those interested in theology and science. Arthur Peacock, for example, says, creation is costly to God not only as a divine self-emptying to another, but continuously as God experiences the negative elements of the world from its inside. Now what's ultimately at stake here is not just canonic cosmology, but the meaning of the love of God and the nature of God's relationship to the world. Thomas Ord, another theologian who likes to think in these terms, argues that God's relation to the world is essentially canonic. Essentially canonic. We've talked about that concept already today. He thinks that God's love overpowers his sovereignty, as it were, tying his strong right arm behind his back, forcing him to be non-coercive towards his creatures. My friend Mike McClyman thinks that Ord's view owes more to shelling than to scripture. For shelling, Kenoticism is the answer to the problem of how the absolute relates to the finite. But I think Schelling misuses Philippians 2 to answer a metaphysical question. So the doctrine of ex nihilo helps us to remember the difference between creator and creature. Secondly, it helps us to make right judgments as to the way in which God does relate to the world. The most important thing and the easiest to forget because we're inveterate idolaters, is that God does not compete with creation. Ord's proposal rests on a false premise, namely, that God and the world are competitors on the same level, the same metaphysical playing field. But the creator-creature distinction is asymmetrical. It may be constitutive for us, but it isn't for God. Or, as Rowan Williams has recently put it, God does not have to grow smaller for human beings to be free. I wish I could do his accent better. So God is not the greatest worldly cause, the biggest thing around. God is rather the utterly beyond in our midst. To view God as supreme cause or even as a being than which nothing greater could be conceived is to risk bringing God down to our level, to making him only comparatively rather than absolutely different. But the triune creator is not part of tapanta, the all things referred to by Paul in Colossians 1.16. Creation ex nihilo exposes theological bad judgment. The one who creates, relates to, and sustains us is the one who does not need us and is altogether unlike us. And it's precisely because God possesses perfect life in himself that he can be wholly benevolent towards us. That God created us from nothing is good news because it means we're here because God loves to give life. Yes, we can affirm human freedom, in fact, the whole reality of secondary causes, because God's primary causality is on an entirely different level, not in competition with worldly causes. God is not our rival, He's the one who constitutes us and all creatures as moved movers. We owe our ability to do things to God. We are moved. But we really have the ability to do things. He created us movers, and some of us shakers. And then finally, the doctrine of creation forms habits of good theological judgment by enabling us to identify God, the world, and ourselves rightly. Knowing who God is is essential to knowing who we are. The truth about anything created, ourselves included, is that creatures are contingent and wholly dependent on God. We did not have to be. Yet, in God's benevolence, we are. God thinks, therefore I am. Knowing that things are related to God gives them a certain depth dimension. And knowing what's what... The goodness, yet the creaturely status of particular things, is essential if we're to adopt the right attitude towards them. This is important these days as concerns the environment. The doctrine of creation also helps us to understand the identity of Jesus Christ as the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. So I come to point five. Creation is the work of the entire Godhead, but... The persons perform the work in distinct ways. Some works are assigned imminently, but not exclusively, to one person. The Son is not simply an instrument through whom the Father creates. The Son is a creative agent in his own right. John 1.3, all things were made through him, that is the word that was with God at the beginning, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's also 1 Corinthians 8 6. There's one God the Father, from whom and are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. John Webster views the Son as the exemplary and efficient cause of creation. The word the Father pronounces in the eternal generation of the Son is an eternal statement of the divine wisdom that eventually gets spoken, analogically as it were, as temporal creation. As the Father's word and wisdom, the Son is a kind of template for the expression of God's subsequent creative speech acts. The Son is the eternal archetypal word that structures everything else God says. God says, let there be light, yes, but we know that the Son has always been true light. So uh, Christ is a fully divine creative agent, but also a fully human creature. The matter that ultimately matters is the body of Jesus Christ. Now human beings run the gamut of the natural order, and so we're microcosms of creation. We're multi-leveled beings, a little lower than the angels, but we're embodied, and therefore, we're better representatives of the created order, and we're images of God. But Jesus, the eternal word made flesh, recapitulates this human microcosm, but perfectly, sinlessly. In Jesus' humanity, there is only createdness, not fallenness. That's why for Irenaeus, every aspect of Christ's earthly life has cosmic significance. The Son is not created, but the humanity he assumes in his incarnation is. And the gospel stands or falls with the reality of the physical matter that is part and parcel of his atoning death and bodily resurrection. Matter matters, and Jesus' bodily matter matters most of all. God created it all good, and what happened to the particular matter of Jesus' body and blood marks the turning point in universal history. At this point, I can't... Uh, help but mention Paul Blauer's book, The Drama of the Divine Economy, Creator and Creation and Early Christian Theology and Piety. He argues that for early Christianity, the incarnation, the story of the created humanity of the one who created all things, the incarnation becomes a kind of play within a play of the whole economy of creation and salvation. It's this drama of the divine economy not speculation about ultimate origins that shaped the doctrine of creation in the early church he thinks. Now it's significant that the drama of redemption focuses on the middle distance level uh, the level in which human beings interact not the infinitely large planetary motions, nor the infinitesimally small but the medium human size level What J.L. Austin describes as the world of moderate-sized dry goods. This is the level that most interests Scripture most of the time. The conflict that gives the drama its urgency is less cosmic than cardiac. It's a matter of the orientation of the heart. And this is also the level on which Jesus' humanity plays out. And for soteriological purposes, this is the level where the action is. Jesus' human life fulfills the creator author's original intention, which is to instantiate God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Now I knew this lecture would have to focus on Jesus' humanity even before I listened to Rowan Williams' lectures delivered a couple of months ago in Cambridge on Christ and the logic of creation. Williams suggests that getting Christology right helps us to understand the creator-creature relation. That's because Christology is about the creator enacting the creature's life in order to realize the telos of creation. So I think it would not be amiss to take a moment to remember whose creation project it really is. God's creation project is to unite or sum up all things in Christ. It's a project whose end is greater than its beginning. But from the beginning, creation had a telos, a telos that required the faithful participation of human creatures. And to the problem that there were no faithful human creatures, no, not one, God provides a solution. God comes into relationship with that which is not himself through his son, who, as the eternal word that created and structured all things in time, became flesh within time to redeem humanity and creation itself. The doctrine of creation, then, is as much about the end as it is the beginning. And that's because Scripture talks about the end in terms of the beginning, in terms of new creation. I just got a new commentary on Ephesians, weighs in at 600-plus pages by Stephen Baugh, and uh, the, uh, it's okay, the bit about the theological significance is just a half a page, um, at least in the introduction, in the introduction. But in that important half page, he says that the main theme of the epistle is unity in the inaugurated new creation. An earlier version of my title explicitly alluded to Ephesians 1.10 in speaking of summation in Christ matters most. And ex nihilo, too, plays a role in our thinking of redemption and consummation. God's freedom to do an entirely new thing lies at the heart of cosmology and soteriology alike. In fact, for the Cappadocians, according to Blowers, the Christian gospel is primarily, not derivatively, about new creation. And it's worth pondering that the language of regeneration and new creation echoes ex nihilo. As God created the first man, so Christians are urged to put on the new self created, same Greek term that translates uh, the bara in the Septuagint, Uh, Christians are urged to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And just as all things were made through the pre-existent logos, So the new creation comes into existence through the incarnate Logos, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Again, note the centrality of Jesus' humanity, the microcosm of the new creation. Resurrection isn't simply about going to heaven. Rather, it's about a new kind of heavenly, earthly existence, feathers, feathers, peach fuzz, and glorified bodily all. In Christ's humanity, we see creation's proper response to the Creator most fully revealed. In Christ, our distorted humanity has been reestablished in its proper orientation toward the Creator. Am I forgetting the Holy Spirit? I already mentioned feathers and all, but uh, more importantly, uh, Basil of Caesarea describes the Holy Spirit as the perfecting cause of creation. The Spirit sanctifies created being by enabling creatures to be what the Father created them to be. And for the human creature, the Spirit does this by drawing us into right relationship with Jesus Christ. In some, Jesus exemplifies what human nature was created to be, namely Holy oriented to God. Bodies presented as living sacrifices. Bodies, bundles of matter, offering everything that they have and do and are to the praise of the Father. Jesus' matter, his embodied humanity, matters most because it shows us what all creation should look like. In Christ, redeemed creation is offered back to the Father, perfected by the Spirit, as a sacrifice of praise to the Creator's intended purpose from the beginning. The end, the first fruits of the new creation in Christ, is similarly in the beginning. Let me conclude with five cautions and five exhortations, things to keep in mind not only tomorrow and Saturday, but maybe for the next three years for those involved in the creation project. First five cautions. Avoid being reductionist. Don't look down on science, or theology, or even biblical studies. I've argued that both books, Nature and Scripture, are multi-leveled. So all three of these disciplines may have helpful insights, though not always at the same level. And truth may not always require us to use the same vocabulary or the same set of categories. Problems arise primarily when either scientists or theologians or exegetes begin to explain away what the others believe to be true. Secondly, don't confuse the evidence with your reading of the evidence. Exegesis without presuppositions isn't possible, and I think that pertains to the book of nature and scripture alike. Third, don't conflate physics or any other science with metaphysics. Scientism or materialism is a metaphysical position, not a scientific position. So is creationism. Fourth, don't isolate the doctrine of creation from other theological topics. I've mentioned God, the gospel, and Christology. And fifth, don't limit the significance of the doctrine of creation and the new creation to the human creature. If something exists, it's because God willed it into existence and we would do well to ponder how to honor his decision. And then some exhortations. First, develop an interest in other levels of reality than the one that is the focus of your academic specialization. I see this not as commending perspectivism, but a rich aspectival realism. We all need to be able to describe things more thickly. That's my second uh, moral, give thick descriptions. Uh, Third, cultivate and then practice the interpretive virtues knowing that we're reading our respective books and one another's books through a glass darkly. By interpretive virtues I mean habits of mind that are conducive towards understanding truly. Things like honesty, attentiveness, patience, often boldness, always humility. Fourth and more controversially, perhaps, read Genesis and all of Scripture Christianly. That is, as people who know that the God referred to is Father, Son, and Spirit. To bracket the Trinity out of our interpretations is like playing tennis blindfolded. You can do it, but why? Well, uh, Don Carson suggested one reason to do it, It's not tennis, but uh, the other bit. It's anachronistic. It's anachronistic. Now, in response, I would encourage us to draw a distinction. Again, this is making a judgment. I'm drawing a distinction. I'd like us to distinguish the sense of the text from its referent. And I'd like to suggest that meaning and interpretation involves both. You see, I'm not calling Christians to import a sense into words that those words did not have in the ancient context. But I am asking us to unpack what we know the divine author was talking about by means of these words, the referent, in ways that the human author might not have been able to do, BC. As long as we keep those tasks straight, we should be able to avoid eisegesis, especially if we're practicing the interpretive virtues. And then finally, view the creation project as a mission to contemporary culture, and I'm including the evangelical church in that. I've already said how central I think creation ex nihilo is to a proper understanding of God, the world, and ourselves. I even had the audacity to compare it to homoousios, a key concept of Nicene Trinitarianism. Well, again, homoousios was not a conceptual cop-out to Hellenization. Homoousios was a key to the evangelization of the Hellenic world. It was a way of exercising right biblical judgment when it came to thinking and talking about God in that cultural context. Friends, I think the creation project was born for such a time as this. Our common task is to speak into a new cultural situation. It's not dominated by Greek ontological categories, but modern, scientific, naturalistic ones. and The challenge for us is to express biblical judgments in terms and concepts that our scientific culture can understand. And as with any culture, it helps to speak the language. What do you call a situation where biblical scholars and theologians are more comfortable talking about Canaanite creation myths and Stoic philosophy and homoousios, than they are general relativity and genomes. I call it a crisis in Christian mission. Now make no mistake, it's not that our scientific age has authority over theology, only that, like language, it provides the materials which we have to use if we want to say what we need to say about God, the gospel, and the world, if we're gonna communicate to the present generation. Now, we may not produce a 21st equivalent of the formula of Nicaea for the doctrine of creation. In fact, we most certainly will not. (laughs) But I trust that we will, nevertheless, learn how better to render the biblical judgment that God is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, in ways that will allow us to bear faithful and compelling witness in word and deed to the triune creator and the good news of new creation in Christ. Thank you.